Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is your host, Lorraine Nightheart. You have reached Venus Unplugged. And what we do in this part called... I just got up like an hour ago, and I always need two hours between dream time and this side of reality. So I may be stumbling over my words, but not my thoughts, because I've been thinking about this for a long time. So, Venus Unplugged, we explore the archetype of Venus and uh, and dream and consciousness and humanity. What is, what, what is it about humanity that we all wanted to be here? Today's topic is going to be grief. Now, I know this is the holiday season, and it's a holiday season of joy, but the opposite is grief of people um, at this time remember those who have passed on many many people leave the planet during holidays I think they get uh, extra points and there is a a, a belief that uh, people leave the planet on certain high holy days they get a easy pass or a direct pass to wherever they are going um whether I'm not a particular believer of heaven or hell, but I do uh, believe, sometimes I even know it, uh, that at some level we become either a wave or a particle, but we will go into the cosmic hole. So in grieving, I am going to read from a book. It's called A Grief Observed by none other than C.S. Lewis, the man who wrote Narnia. And I was quite taken with this book because it really truly is like an honest human account of this man's grief. And um, in the introduction, his son, his stepson, talks about how British boys don't cry. So when his mother died, uh, C.S. Lewis's wife, of course he couldn't cry. And uh, I thought, wow. Terrible, terrible thing to take away from somebody, especially, um, you know, men. What, what, what do you do with the grief? There's more violence. What do you do with the suffering? You know, tears are the holy water of the soul. The soul weeps. The heart weeps. The body weeps. And it's a very important process. It's a cleansing now, I'm not talking about somebody who's just neurotic and just cries all the time and can't contain themselves. That's not what I see as weeping. But to take that gift from anyone, be strong, pony up, uh, whatever we are telling one another, very often is because we cannot witness another's suffering. And it is very important for the person who is suffering to be witnessed, not looked at, related to, don't fix it, don't, well, they're in a better place now. We don't know that. We hope that, but we don't know that. Or worse, get over it. you got to get over it. No, you don't. 
Most people never get over the death of someone they love, ever. They get a new wisdom. They get an insight. They live with it. It's a deepening. It's, it, it, it makes, uh, well, it can make for bitterness. People can never let go in the sense and never let the grief move through them, the process of the grief, the wisdom of the grief, the wisdom in the, the, in the body of grief. And grief doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, someone has died. We have grief about, certainly grief about divorce, certainly grief, uh, 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 whatever the grief or the sorrow may be, the loss may be. We didn't get into the school we wanted. We didn't get the love of our life that we wanted. Uh, whatever this grief may be, it is a very real and human holy process that is part of the divinity of becoming a human. And that's the most and the best we can go for. We're here in this human experience and that's where the divine is. It's not up in heaven. It's here becoming human and most are truly unfinished art forms but we were working on it so becoming human and grieving is part of human joy uh, anger you know all the the good and the not so good and what is so exquisite about this this book a grief observed by c.s lewis the man who wrote narnia is his honest account and his struggle with God about death. And that's a very big struggle. Why? Or why the cruelty? Or, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of pages, but I advise if it's, it's a quick read and, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's wisdom at the end of it, but not in the process. And as there is wisdom in the end of most things, if we approach, I, I don't think there's a path. I think there's an honesty. Just a funky, not whole, honest human approach is going to save your soul in many ways. So, yes, you may have an official way or ritual or or all those marvelous expressions of divinity and and humanity, but just a funky, honest, humble, okay, I've been brought to my knees, and now that I'm down here, you're looking awfully tall. Um, But being also brought to the knees means we're we're connected to the earth. Humus, humility. The teacher, and you know, we're certainly seeing a lot of inflation uh, and grief that's coming out of watching hubris and inflation. So, this is a very powerful season. <clears throat> it's a powerful season of going into the underworld, um, and it is a season, it does not last forever. It feels like forever when we're going through it, but it doesn't last forever. And it's also, you know, 
the holiness in holidays. The, the holiness in the holidays is is the, the, the birth of the divinity, the divine infant child within. That's a very important um, attitude to have. Something, someone, perhaps a stranger within. Now that child may come out wounded and screaming and yelling, and you have to learn to be the the loving parent and listen to its story. Because very often uh, in grieving, not very often, I feel it again and again, the person must tell the story again and again and again. And if you've never faced death, you find it annoying. Why don't they just shut up and get over it? Well, if you've been through the valley of grief, you know, that person needs to repeat again and again, because in telling the story and in one with, you know, witnessing, not backing away. I mean, we can we can tie ourselves to a chair, but that doesn't mean we're witnessing. Being able to know this human condition of the sorrow, of the suffering, of the grief is for all of us. And some people, their tears have never fallen. They've never been allowed for whatever the reason. So this time of joy and in true Jungian fashion, this time of, of sorrow, because we're always looking for, you know, the opposites. Because um, one goes, is risen and one goes into the underworld. So, this grief that I'm about to read about, um, just a little background, uh, C.S. Lewis did not marry until, um, I think it was about 60, and um, it was a very, it was a short marriage. First it was a friendship, and then he married this woman to kind of protect her, and then uh, <clears throat> she, um, he eventually fell in love with her in, in this deep love, and his only love at, at 60. Yeah, and um, then she uh, she got cancer, and then uh, they did a lot of prayer work. There was a remission, but she eventually died a few years later. But he had this glorious relationship with her. So here is a man who was a con- you know a, a writer, a scholar, uh, wasn't into so much human love, gave the world Narnia and seventeen other books. <clears throat> all about God and that wonderful. And then he has his rite of passage of grief. So, a grief observed, C.S. Lewis. No one ever told me that grief felt like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times... It feels like being mildly drunk or confused. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone else says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me, to surround me. I dread 
the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. <clears throat> These are the moments most unexpectedly when something inside me tries to assure me that I don't really mind so much, not so very much after all. Love is not the whole of a man's life. I was happy before I ever met H. I've plenty of what are called resources. People get over these things. Come, I shan't do so badly. One is ashamed to listen to this voice, but it seems for a little to be making out a good case. Then comes a sudden jab of red hot memory and all this common sense vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a furnace on the rebound one passes into tears and pathos maudlin tears I almost prefer moments of agony these are at least clean and honest but the bath of self-pity the, the wallow the loathsome uh, sticky sweet pleasure of indulging in it that disgusts me and even while I'm doing it I know it leads me to misrepresent H herself give that mood its head and in a, in a few minutes I shall have substituted it for the real woman a mere doll to be blubbered over thank God the memory of her is still too strong Will it always be too strong to let me get away with it? For H has it. Uh, uh, for H wasn't like that at all. Her mind was lithe and quick and muscular as a leopard. Passion, tenderness, and pain were all equally unable to disarm it. It scented the first whiff of cant or slush, then sprang and knocked you over before you knew what was happening, how many bubbles of mine she pricked. I soon learned not to talk rot to her unless I did it for the sheer pleasure. And there's another red-hot jab of being exposed and laughed at. I was never less silly than as H's lover. And no one ever told me about the laziness of grief except at my job, where the machine uh, seems to run on much as usual. I loathe the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much, even shaving. What does it matter now whether my cheek is rough or smooth? They say an unhappy man wants distractions, something to take him out of himself. Only as a dog-tired man wants an extra blanket on a cold night, he'd rather lie shivering than get up and find one. It's easy to see why the lonely become untidy and finally dirty and disgusting. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you were happy, so happy uh, that you had no, no sense of needing him, so happy uh, that you are tempered to feel to, or tempted to feel uh, his claims upon you as an interruption 
if you remembered yourself and turned to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more empathetic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhibited? It seems it seemed so once. And that seeming was as, was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so absent? a help in the time of trouble. I try to put some of my thoughts to see this afternoon. He reminded me that the same thing seems to happen uh, to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know. Does that make it easier to understand? Now that I think, or now that I am, in such danger of ceasing to believe in God, the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God at all, but so this is what God really is like. Deceive yourself no longer. My elders submitted and said, Thy will be done, but how bitter resentment has been sifted through sheer terror as an act of love, yes, in any sense, an act put on to hide operation. Of course, it's easy enough to say that God seems absent at our greatest need because he is absent, non-existent. But then, why does he seem so present? To put it quite frankly, we don't ask for him. Why is he so present? And then he goes on to talk about one thing, however, marriage had done for me. And I could never believe that religion is manufactured out of our unconscious, starved desire as a substitute. So he goes on to speak, and he speaks that of how he, he never knew. Yeah. After the death of a friend years ago, I had for some time a most vivid feeling of certainty about his continued life, even his enhanced life. I have begged to be given even one hundredth part of the same assurance about age. There is no answer. Only the locked door, the iron curtain, the vacuum, the absolute zero. Them as asked don't get. I was fooled to ask, but now, even if I had that assurance, I should distrust it. I should think it is self-hypnosis induced by my own prayers. So this is the doubt that the grief takes us through. Because we are in the process, we are feeling it, we are moving through it. And even if our prayers were answered, we'd never hear them. 
and the prayers are always answered because there is always the presence of divinity, not the one or our version. Because any version that we have of what is divine you know, comes from other belief systems, comes from what we desire, comes from a God is only good. Well, what's good, you know, and what's not good? Which is why um, the, the next evolution of humanity and storytelling needs to be about the shadow and light of all things and the tension of the opposites so that we can get another insight. Because in the grieving process is the divine, is the healing. It tenderizes the heart. It brings us to being human and not to brave it through like he says, he can he can go to work, he can get the job done, but everything kind of tastes like paper. Um, there is there is there is no eros um, in this pathos in grieving, but there is no eros. And when he explains that, that it's just that empty empty feeling, then we are in the state of pathos. Doesn't mean much. So. These are archetypals of gods. These are divinities that are guiding us to get to know what pathos is. Now, why do we need to know? To become whole. So when we beg for wholeness, um, it's part of what we're begging for. I want to be whole. Well, then we have to know shadow and light. We have to know pathos and heroes. If we're fortunate enough to be trained or tested or become in that way. Sometimes the prayer that is answered is a no. It's a no. And then only years later do we understand how beautiful that no was to our individuation process. If you got every person you ever fell in love with, there's not a room big enough. It'd be so crowded, or whatever it is that we need. You know, this, this, that we want that need to be met, and that whoever we've projected that need onto, and life says no, that's not the one that will harm you. Look at all the divorce. You know, I mean, loving is very often a crapshoot because we don't know what we love or how we love it. Or that beloved comes along and is uh, the villain in our life story because we need a villain to understand what our strengths are. It's kind of like a training. Now, of course, when we're grieving, the loss, which is appropriate and divine and beautiful. We don't know that, but there's something in the depths of grief that is so holy that will bring you to a knowing that you never knew you knew. And that's what knowing is about. Believing is one thing. Um... Learning is one thing, knowledge is one thing, believing is another thing. But 
knowing. And that knowing is rooted deep in the body. And very often it comes as, I know that I know, but I don't know how I know. And grief is taking you to that knowing. It's allowing you to be wise, to understand it. And once you've gone through a grief like that, you know how tinny it sounds to say to anyone, oh, well, they're in heaven now or wherever they're going or at McDonald's or something. Um, Because that person has loved and that love is eternal, not in that form. So there's no getting over it. And it's like, I don't want to get over it. I never want to get over loving somebody because of the ways from particles that I love that concept so much. But why would I want to get over it? Why would I want to forget love? Or even a good enemy. Boy, there's nothing that was strengthening like a good enemy. You know, we, we grieve because that person really, really was a challenge. And so when we look at it from the whole, so being with it, this, it, it could be the, uh, an animal. I remember when my faithy girl passed four months. Every day I got up and just cried. I could do my work, spend hours on Pinterest looking at cats, four months intensely until one day. I was in this great grief and I saw something. It was almost like a luminous cloud. And I'm thinking, now we're, you know, okay, now I've gone into insanity. You know, just like feed the cats and go nuts. Here you're going to go, girl. And but I went deeper because my love for that little soul being that came as a cat, my soul companion, I'd go that far beyond anything I could ever know. When I went closer and closer, I realized the the formation of it was, was I could never even describe it, but I knew. In every cell in my body, it was another level of unimaginable love beyond the limitations of, of, uh, of a description, beyond the limitations of language, beyond the limitations of the breadth of feeling. The grief shifted, but... I was brought to something through the grief that was beyond profound. To this day, I'm still not sure. Nor do I want to be. I don't need to understand it with my mind. My heart knows. So the grieving, as in the joy, it has its place. And and part of this is why what happens at holidays is people... You know, go into a grief. And sometimes it's a grief over, you know, a holiday that never matched, you know, their fantasies or their deprivations. Then grieve it. 
and let the divine child, the divine child that is born out of grief. There is a gift in that grieving. And if you know someone who is grieving, just be with them. Don't have any answers, because there are no answers. Um, and at the end of, of this, this book, Brief of Serbs, he has, finally has a breakthrough and returns his relationship to God. The divine didn't change, but his relationship changed to another level of understanding. And he'd be, you know, helping us become human. So, till next week, au revoir.